0: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we will kick off the Concord Coalition's 30th anniversary year by talking with political and management strategist Kitty Kurth. Who worked on the 1992 presidential campaign of former U.S. Senator Paul Songus, and who later that year became the first employee of the Concord Coalition, which was, of course, formed by Songus and former U.S. Senator from New Hampshire Warren Rudman. Curris was responsible for setting up the new organization's 50-state field plan back in 1992, and that included figuring out what to do with a bunch of eager if sometimes raw volunteers like me. Kurt is president of uh, Kurth Lampy Worldwide, which is a public relations and political strategist uh, firm based in Chicago. Uh, joining me in the conversation today is Concord's current national field director, Phil Smith. Well, let's hearken back to the early days of the Songus campaign, because that's in some ways, the genesis of the Concord Coalition. How did you get involved uh, originally with the Songhus campaign?
2: Oh, in, in more than some ways, it's the genesis of the Concord Coalition. I first got involved like one does in politics because a friend called me and said, hey, I have this great candidate that I'm working with. I want you to come and talk to him. We need your help. And um, in my case, it was several people I had worked with uh, from Massachusetts on the Mike Dukakis campaign in 1988. And I thought, great, just what American politics needs, another liberal Greek from Massachusetts running for governor, perfect. <laughs> um, but I i met Paul, I, I talked to him on the phone originally and, um, and like many people, I, I read his campaign manifesto a call to economic arms or an economic call to arms, depending on which printing of it you got, because it actually had each title once. Um, and I thought that his common sense approach to solving our problems and a Democrat who wasn't afraid of giving business a boost so that working families could have jobs and could have good jobs at good wages. I thought that his approach was very interesting. At the time, what I was really interested even more so than his fiscal ideas was his um, notion of managed care and letting small businesses across the country join with other small businesses in states to have buying pools for health insurance to try to control costs and um, allow people better access to health care. And as a small business owner, I was really intrigued by that. And I wish that we would have paid more attention to his ideas back then. But um, I I worked on the campaign and, you know, never say never do anything well that you don't want to keep doing for the rest of your life. Um, We needed a lot of miracles on that campaign. We had a lot of it was tough. We weren't the front runner. We didn't have a lot of budget. And Paul Songas kept telling me and saying, but Kitty, we need to figure out we need to do this. And he would put these impossible tasks in front of me and then stupidly I would achieve them. And every time he needed a miracle, I would pull it off Um, so that that it made for a wonderful campaign. We had some great experiences. It was really good in my mind for Songus's voice to be in those debates and to be part of the discussion and for um, later President Clinton to hear those ideas and to hear that there was a an audience for Songus's economic ideas out in the country. I think that was incredibly, incredibly important. And then after the campaign, I kept getting calls on my answering machine at my office from somebody who I thought was imitating Paul Songus. I thought that my friend Dennis Alpert was calling me imitating Paul Songus. So I kept calling Dennis Alpert back. Finally, Paul had a mutual friend call me and say, Kitty, why aren't you returning Paul's calls? (laughs) Oops, I thought it was Dennis. So I called Paul back and he told me about the idea of the Concord Coalition and that he would like me, to think about how we could do it and to um, figure out a plan. And remember, back in those days, Bob, we didn't have fax. We had fax machines. We didn't have really everybody didn't have computers. We didn't have the Internet. We had to call people and organize people through meeting them in groups and talking to them. So I'll I'll give you a break to ask a question, but then I'll happily tell you about the first meeting of the Concord Coalition at Pete Peterson's office in New York.
0: Well, let me uh, let me just uh, go back on some of that, because it it really is a a great summary of how the the campaign kind of morphed into it. Uh, You know, my experience on getting involved with the campaign was uh, I was sitting around uh in fredericksburg virginia thinking that i probably was one of the only people in the state of virginia that had ever heard of paul songas because i grew up in massachusetts uh and you the, might have the, been right yeah i think i was uh, the, the 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 dirty little secret was that uh, in in uh, 1978 not to give away uh, my age uh, here but um uh, when Paul Saungas was elected to the Senate, I actually voted for the incumbent Ed Brooke <laughs> at that time.
2: Who, who in uh, retrospect, wasn't a bad guy. Paul was just a better senator.
0: Well, he was, uh, He was. Uh, Ed Brooke was terrific. I wish we could have had them both. And then, uh, yeah. you know, but but the thing was that um, I, I had an interesting experience, similar to yours, that a friend of mine was the first that told me about Paul Songus running for president. And we were actually uh, classmates at the Kennedy School at that time. And she said to me, you know, Bob, isn't this amazing? Paul Songbos is running for president. I said, Jackie, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard of. (laughs) For the same reason you ever said, Uh, that's just what the Democratic Party needs is another Greek from Massachusetts uh, right after Dukakis. who you know, just wasn't uh, there weren't fond memories of the Dukakis campaign, the Democratic Party at that time. But anyway, I so I kind of put it out of my head. Uh, until, uh, you know, I kept thinking, well, you know, I really like what Paul Songers is saying, but he can't win. And then I started thinking to myself, that's a dumb attitude. You know, if you, you know, the policy is supposed to work that if you like somebody, you should work for them. So I called the campaign, the Boston office, and I offered to volunteer. And they said, wow, somebody from Virginia. So I really did sort of, I, I ended up being a delegate to the Democratic National Convention because there was, the, you know, there was nobody else in Virginia so uh, so we got so that's um, probably one of the few people that's uh, voted in a working in a Republican campaign and then ended up being a Democrat um, uh, delegate to the convention. But uh, it, it really is interesting. But that it that, that kind of shows the the, uh, the way that Paul Songus attracted a wide variety of people with a wide variety of backgrounds and, to sort of tie back to your point.
2: And and this is this is what I miss the most about those years in Washington, D.C. and my work with the Concord Coalition, when we could get people like Vin Weber and Paul Simon in the same room and to talk about ideas and to agree on things, you know, Joe Kennedy. um, uh, We we could get, you know, Dan Rostenkowski. We could go talk to Dan Rostenkowski and to Republicans. At, and have them actually literally sit down at a table and have civil and interesting conversations about ideas. And while we started with the fiscal policies and money issues, once we got people at the table to talk about that, we were Actually, honestly, able to have discussions about other ideas as well. You know, once you got people sitting at a table, you could have a conversation and you could exchange ideas.
0: Well, the interesting thing about fiscal policy is that it affects everything. I mean, everything has to go through the budget at one time or another. And so it can lead to bigger uh, conversations. But I do want to ask you before I get Phil into the conversation here Uh, because you mentioned is the first meeting of the Concord Coalition. And I I want you to tell that story just to sort of give people a little bit of a a background on our 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 30th anniversary.
2: I'm going to invariably it's going to be like thanking people at a party. I'm going to leave some people out, but maybe I can fill in later. I was, you know, told I had to go to. uh, Could I come to New York to this meeting in Pete Peterson's office? Well, Pete Peterson was daunting enough. His secretary had been Fred Friendly's secretary at CBS for years. She was one of those amazing executive assistants, old school that you don't see anymore. I walk into the room. It's Felix Royatan, um, who later was, you know, who was from Lazar Freres, later ambassador to France, and Jordan, Vernon Jordan's wife, Zoe Baird. Um, uh Joan Ganz Cooney, P. Pete Peterson's wife, who started children's who started public television for children and is basically the mother of Sesame Street. Leslie Gelb from The New York Times, David Gergen, who has served every president ever in my lifetime, as far as I can tell. Um, and George Romney and and others who I will I will go back in my brain and remember so you can fill it in on the on the web version of the podcast. But it was me and and Warren Rudman, of course, and Paul Songus. It was me and all these people that I basically knew from them being talking heads on television or the opinion leaders in The New York Times. And so they looked to me and said, so we want to do this thing, the Concord Coalition, bring people together to talk about the budget and the deficit and create a grassroots movement across the country to make change in our public policy. How are we going to do it, Kitty? Well, I had more answers then than I do now. But um, but we had a great discussion and about it was also right around the times that um, the uh, Rodney King riots in L.A., and people at that table were very conscious of economic inequality and economic inequality leading to change, not in a good way, and that they wanted to be part of the solution, that they wanted to try to fix our economy. And, you know, the the thing with Paul Songus it wasn't What people don't remember is it wasn't that he wanted to get rid of the deficit and the debt for the sake of getting rid of the deficit and the debt. He wanted to make it so that we were not spending so much money on interest that we didn't have money to spend on education or on public policy. He wanted us to be smart in our spending and to lower our deficits so that we could be spending money on the right things
0: um
1: Uh, phil you want to Sure. Wanted- Thank you, Kitty. I'm I'm fascinated by the year 1992 in New Hampshire. So I wanted to turn back just a little bit to that because Paul Songus was such an unlikely candidate for president um, in many ways. And I think oftentimes Americans and particularly people in New Hampshire seem to always be looking for that outsider candidate. Uh, but but he he'd mostly been out of politics for eight years after battling cancer. And what was it you think that actually propelled him? to being not just a leading candidate, but he actually won New Hampshire in 1992.
2: As I often have to remember, George, remind George Stephanopoulos and James Carville that Paul Songis actually won New Hampshire, Bill Clinton did not, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> I think the same thing that propelled Paul to run was what propelled me to vote to work for him and to vote for him. Um, He, after having survived cancer, he knew that he survived for a reason, that he didn't survive to sit on his hands up in Lowell and say, woe is me. He survived so that he could talk about the ideas that he believed in and so that he could speak truth to power and people in new hampshire as i've worked in new hampshire many times since 1988 and 1992 you know people in new hampshire like like candidates that will speak truth to power and that aren't afraid to say what they think. And Paul Songus was a truth teller. Paul Songus was not afraid to tell the truth. And I thought at the time, you know, if somebody has the guts to speak up and say the things that need to be said, I should help him. And that was why I think the people of New Hampshire voted for him and why he won New Hampshire was he was not afraid to tell the truth about the good things and the bad things in the United States and to not be afraid to have a bold vision for how the U.S. should move forward.
1: Yeah, as a, certainly. Go, go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. I was just saying, I had recently graduated from the University of Georgia around that time, and I was so interested in what he was saying, because initially, you know, there were other candidates that intrigued me. But one of the things that I remember so much about Paul Sangas is he educated people about issues. Right. Which was so I mean, he wasn't he wasn't a pander. <laughs> right And in fact, Ever. other people were <laughs> pander, but he, he wasn't a pander and, and that education helped me so much to learn so much more about economic issues. And do you, do you think that some of those themes from his particularly his New Hampshire campaign in 92 are still relevant today?
2: I think they are. and I think that um, you guys need to reeducate people and maybe to even, Take a look at Paul's book from 1992. Unfortunately, a lot of the things that he wrote about in A Call to Economic Arms, unfortunately, we haven't learned our lesson. We need to go back and look at that. We need to invest in the economy and you know, put people back to work. I know our economic challenges now are not exactly the same as 92 in some ways better and in many ways worse, but I think it's worth looking back on. Um, But he he did educate people to. um, And as a press person, I've got a laugh because we often had to tell him, like, you know, Paul, this isn't a college lecture, we need to get the message down to three message points so that people will remember, you know, you need to say it in 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. But for the people that were listening, like you, Phil, it made sense and they did listen and they did hear a message that they wanted to see carried forward. And that was what made it easier to form a field organization, and you know, we got a field organization for the Concord Coalition up and running in all fifty states in six weeks, and that was actually faster than any presidential field operation had been brought up to speed. And that was before, as I say, and we'll say again and again, it was before the internet. We called people, we wrote letters. We had to actually speak to people and have conversations with people. And I think that's one of the things that I miss about politics and about organizing today. I think emails are great and efficient, but I think when you take conversations out of the mix, you lose a lot in politics.
0: You know, we're going to have to wrap up this first segment, but I want to get back to what you were saying about the call to economic arms or the economic call to arms, um, it, because I, I really uh, think that's right. Two years ago, we we did a project called uh, uh, Fiscally Responsible Economic Growth Agenda. Uh, we couldn't think of a really uh, a snappy title for it. But uh, but it really was trying to get at that, and I think now that you know you get the pandemic sort of interrupting everything for two years, and as the Concord Coalition goes into its thirtieth year, we're thinking you know we we need to get back to that um, theme about the fiscally responsible economic growth agenda, and a lot of the things that Paul Songris wrote about talked about that were innovative in those days are relevant today. And just to, to tick off the titles, um, people can get this at the University of Massachusetts Lowell campus website. Uh, there's a song as digital archives. But he talked about economic survival, education, environment, energy, uh, foreign policy, and cultural fab- fabric. Now, that's that's kind of a list of, of uh, topics that are current now. And... Uh, you know we need to go back and think of those in the context of a, a, a growth strategy that is fiscally responsible. Um, Kitty, uh, hold that thought because we're gonna have to uh, take a few short messages. This is Facing the Future. Uh, this is Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Kitty Kurth, who is the first employee and everything of the Concord Coalition uh, 30 years ago, and Phil Smith, our current national field director. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith and I are talking with political and marketing strategist Kitty Kurth about the 1992 presidential campaign of former U.S. Senator Paul Songhus and how it led to the founding of the Concord Coalition in September of 1992. Um, you know, Kitty, we were talking about the uh, one of the attractions of the Songus campaign. One of the things that I think. I thought was most unique about it was, he, he combined a, uh, a very liberal point of view on social policies, and yet he certainly uh, advocated fiscal responsibility. And to me, I, I, I was very happy to have a candidate where I didn't have to park all of my thoughts on one side of that or other. I didn't see a divide uh, between those two things. Could you talk about how that issue is, is playing out now?
2: Absolutely, Bob. Um, One of the reasons that I didn't support Bill Clinton initially was the environment. I was doing a lot of work on the environment back in those days. And Bill Clinton as governor did not have such a great record. And Paul Songus, on the other hand, was a leader in environmental advocacy, a leader on pushing um, climate change when we still called it global warming and on gay rights. He was the first person in Congress to ever put forward a gay rights amendment. And that was one of the ways in Illinois that I organized um, a lot of people who have subsequently become leaders in the equal rights movements in Illinois, they got started as Songist volunteers and Songist delegates back in the day. But for me, it was a very comfortable place. I I am very socially liberal, but I'm a small business person. You know, I want to be I I want to be able to run my business. I want to be able to I want to pay taxes because I want to invest in education, but I don't want to be drowned. And, you know, that was why he could attract one of the people that I forgot to mention at that first meeting of the Concord Coalition was um, George Romney, Mitt Romney's father who actually sat next to me. And as a fellow Midwesterner, he had been governor of Michigan We really bonded at that meeting. And for the first three weeks after the meeting, when I went back to my office and was trying to figure out how to put together a 50 state field campaign and a grassroots campaign, George Romney spent almost an hour every day on the phone with me, talking through grassroots movements and how to organize things and how to attract more Republicans and more middle of the road people to the campaign. And somewhere in my arc, archives, and it's probably disappeared by now. He sent me 12 pages of notes written out on a legal pad and he faxed it to me, but it was on that slimy fax paper, so it's probably disappeared. But I just want to give credit to George Romney for having a great political mind and understanding grassroots movements, and I always wished Even though I was not supporting Mitt Romney, I kept looking when Mitt Romney was running for president. I kept looking for more of that in Mitt's campaign, and I never heard it until a documentary made about Romney after the campaign. So for those of you who are interested in the economy and politics, don't forget to talk about your views during the campaign.
0: (laughs) Don't wait till uh... after yeah that's a, that's always good advice <laughs> phil um uh you want to jump in
1: uh, sure. jump in again here sure absolutely um uh, you know when i look back uh to this time period that we're talking about um it seemed like even though you know it wasn't a perfect era there was still a lot of challenges it seemed like the deficit of public trust wasn't as large as it is today so the, of all the deficits we talk about, that's one that's the hardest to maybe get around, right? Because um, both sides don't trust one another. I mean, we were joking about who was supporting whom back in 1992, Um, One of the reasons that I was hired to go to work for the Concord Coalition is I actually had a little bit of a bipartisan background, which is unheard of today. Right. You can't plant your flag. You're you're sworn to death. It's a
2: dirty word.
1: Yeah. So uh, what do you think? I mean, what do we what do we do in today's society? Do we still use sort of the same model that you were using back in 1992? Do we have to adjust or how do we handle this?
2: This is um, I actually work with a group called a hope, not hate in Britain to try to figure out how to get people to talk to one another. And I think it has to start on a personal level. It has to start with, you know, people in Congress. Sometimes, you know, it's as simple as who's your office neighbor across the hall in Rayburn? You know, if your office neighbor is. A Republican in Rayburn, you know, just go talk to the staff in their office, go talk to that member, even if they are a conservative Democrat or Republican and you're a liberal Democrat, there's going to be some issues that you can talk about. There's going to be at least one thing you can agree on. And sometimes you got to stop looking at the 90 percent and go for the 10% and go for the 10% first and build on that. I, I also think as far as educating the public about what really matters and what really goes on in Washington, there's such a level of distrust between people out like me out beyond the Beltway and people in the Beltway. I think there's gotta be education at the very basic level. And one of the things that we used when I started the Concord Coalition was the penny game where you take 100 pennies and you put them on each of the spots where you think government spending is. And now that we're in a lockdown, I think you could do really effective Zoom meetings with people from all different country or states and counties, rural and urban, and start doing those penny games on zoom and get people to have a dialogue about you know how much of our federal budget really is spent on immigration on education on uh, you know on on military spending what do we really spend our money on and as we build back better and as we come out of this deficit or this sorry out of the pandemic what do we want our country to look like? And I think bringing that tool back might help people get a really visceral understanding of what we could get our country to look like.
1: I think the late uh, Janet Ryan, who was our California volunteer director for many years, and uh, actually a staffer of the Concord Coalition as well, uh, is smiling from heaven right now. That was her favorite field tool that she used. And it works particularly well with younger people. Any advice on getting onto college campuses? That's a big goal for well, us.
2: where it works best is where you can get seniors and young people at the same table. And it's a really good way to get them to have an actual conversation. Um, you know, I think it talking using zoom i think using zoom and i think talking to some of the young democrats and the young republicans and say you know do you like fighting all the time or would you like to actually have a discussion and have a conversation you know things in a lot of ways in the country are really messed up do you want them to be messed up in 20 years or should we maybe talk to one another and try to figure it out together.
0: One thing that you mentioned that'd be kind of fun is to get people from uh, different uh, locations because mixing up the yeah. audience—you know, whether it's
2: that's graphically
0: or by age—you've you, you know?
2: got to have people from Iowa and Atlanta. You know, you've got to have people in the same room. They walk in thinking they have a different. Viewpoint and a different life than that other person. And I have to tell you, from doing democracy training all over the world, I've been very lucky to meet people on almost every continent in cities and in villages. And you know what, most people want is they want a job that they can put food on the table, they want good education for their kids, and they want safety. You know, education, economy, whether it's personal safety or global peace. That's what most people want. And I find that that little game was a great tool to get people to talk about that. And that was one of the things that I liked best about working at the Concord Coalition. I could go to different districts around the country and I could meet with a Republican congressman and the Republican staff and the Republican activists one day and have a conversation and I could go and do the same thing with the Democrats the next day. And then I was able to follow up with both of them and say, hey, you know, could you call this person? Because I just had this conversation with them and they actually want to do the same things that you want to do. Maybe you guys could talk about it and work together.
0: Yeah, that convening function is really, really uh, important. Probably even more so now than it was then, because it's so much more difficult to to crack the ice, and you don't have an institutional memory, whether it's members or staff, uh, that, that you know is used to coalition building and and working together. It's almost like if think- the If the other side wants it, we don't.
2: (laughs) And I think maybe looking at the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we've seen what problems misinformation and disinformation can cause and what having people in news silos, how much trouble and hurt that can cause and I think if we can just in our personal lives or our professional lives break down those barriers a little bit at a time, you know you can't, you can't do it all at once, but if we could start having conversations on college campuses or, you know, on college campus and ask the AARP to be part of the same discussion group, and the PTA, you know, get the the young Republicans, the young Democrats, the PTA and the AARP all in one room to talk about fiscal priorities and about the deficit. Maybe you could get them to talk about other things, too.
0: Kitty, we're going to have to leave it there. And that is a very hopeful, optimistic and uh, cre- creative and useful note to to end on. Uh, certainly appreciate all of your uh, early work and getting the uh, Concord Coalition field operation up and running, we have always been devoted to two things. We've had a field presence, we've had a policy presence. And you have to be able to combine those two things, which we've um, tried to do. And and you and Phil uh, Smith and I have all been National Field Director at one time or another of the Concord Coalition. So we we continue to have that uh, focus, which I really think was a very, very important to both Paul songus and Warren Rudman, uh, which was not to be a think tank, but to have a presence beyond the beltway and to do the sort of things you were just talking about, just getting people, giving people a voice, you know, that uh, that was that was
2: exactly it. And for me to have a chance to talk about Paul Songhus, who will always remain one of my political heroes because of his lack of fear of speaking truth to power, I always welcome that opportunity. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate being here today.
1: Thank you. Thank you,
0: Kitty. You're you're listening to Face in the Future. Phil Smith and I have been talking with uh, Kitty Curth, who was the first employee and everything of the the Concord Coalition 30 years ago. Uh, Phil and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, Concord Coalition National Field Director Phil Smith uh, is with me. And Phil, today we've been talking about uh, the importance of public education in our segment with uh, Kitty Kurth. And just, you know, I I go back uh, to the very beginning of the Concord Coalition as well. And it's always been this Kind of two-headed monster. I mean, we we have been uh, in some ways focused on policy because that's important. But the the vision of the founders really was that the Concord Coalition should not be a think tank. It should be a, a grassroots organization. It should be focused on public education beyond the Beltway. So we 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 try to do both things and. That's the the job that I had at one time being the national field director and and you have now, uh, one of our most popular tools is is, you know, well Kitty mentioned the the penny game, which people kind of assign where they think the money is in the federal budget and then you can have a discussion about it. And the other one calls on people to have it's called principles and priorities, calls upon people to actually make choices about specific options. So, in our thirtieth anniversary year, uh, tell us about some of the uh, the, the, the field plans that uh, that we have to maintain and enhance
1: this public education message. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think back to Paul Songus and Warren Rudman, our founders, and 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 what they wanted. As you said, they they wanted it to be more than just consultants running around the country with a fax machine. They really wanted real grassroots activity. They wanted education, uh, and particularly with young people. Uh, and so, um, when I think about going onto college campuses and helping to educate people, that exercise is a perfect way to do it. And so in our 30th year, we are planning to, uh, go to 30 college campuses across America from sea to shining sea, and to uh, run our budget exercise, to bring in policy experts and to help educate people about this. And I, you know, Paul Songus used to reference another Paul, uh, Paul Revere. And you know, mm-hmm. Paul Revere didn't sit still. He didn't stay at home and ring his bell from home. Uh, <laughs> he got on his horse. And so in our 30th year, we're going to get on our horse and we're going to go to campuses all across the country. We've, uh, last year, we, we actually were on several college campuses, uh, UNLV, UNH, the University of Georgia, Um, We were actually in person at Colorado State. We did one one, one in-person event. It wasn't just on Zoom. Uh, American University hosted. So these are the type places that we plan on going uh, in our 30th year. And so let the word go out. Whoever is listening to us, uh, if you want us at the campus of your alma mater or have uh, contacts at various campuses, uh, we're in the planning stages right now and getting ready to execute uh, this plan to be on 30 college campuses in our 30th year.
0: And you know, with uh, Paul Songas, uh, Paul Songas, uh, Paul Revere didn't have the option of Zoom uh, in 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 those days, but uh, but we do. And uh, you know, it, uh, we're beginning the year in a challenged environment still uh, with uh, COVID, but uh, colleges have learned to adapt, and we've learned to adapt. So we're not going to be slowed down in in the in, you know by anything uh covid related because we you know we we can do these things via zoom we'd like to do them in person and we will look for opportunities uh to do that but there are certain uh ways that we can adapt these things to uh, zoom as well i think that you know one of the one of the things that's really most important i think about the work that we do is getting people to rethink their basic points of view. In, in other words, by that I mean, think about the legitimacy uh, of other people's points of view. And you can only do that in a person to person or maybe in a Zoom environment where people are talking to other people who don't necessarily agree with them. And uh, you know, I've found just in my own personal experience that I might go into a situation pretty much with my mind made up about something. And then I listen to somebody who's got a different point of view. And my initial first reaction might be, I don't agree with that. Uh, <laughs> but if I you know, kind of be polite and, and hold my tongue for a little bit and listen to what they're saying, I might begin to, to change my mind. That, that can happen within the family setting. Uh, and it, it certainly can happen within public policy have you seen that sort of thing and
1: curious absolutely in it's it, it's actually downright cathartic when i see this with the budget exercise and i've i've seen it um one example that i can remember we did an event in north carolina uh, with a very very conservative republican member of the u.s house of representatives and uh not too long before the event i got a call from the local democratic party asking, you know, is this open to the public? And we we're like, absolutely. It is it's open. You know, just because uh, the member of Congress is, is a Republican doesn't mean Democrats can't come please. You know, everybody come. And that night we randomly, this is one of the things we do the exercise, you know, we randomly assign people to these tables. So we, uh, we, we break up marriages and best friends as soon as they walk in the door and put them at different tables. And uh, that night, just by by sure luck and and random circumstance, uh, the head of the local Democratic uh, committee was seated at the same table as the head of the local Republican committee. (laughs) I think it's the first time they had ever been at the same table together. But it was also happening at other tables where CNN viewers or, or MSNBC viewers were at the same table with Fox News viewers, right? And and, uh, and it was fascinating to hear the conversation, because one of the painful ironies about the information age that we live in is that we are siloed and we oftentimes don't ever get out of our silo uh, to talk to other people. So in this case, we're talking about federal budget and assembling. Uh, a, a 10 year federal budget plan in this exercise, but it's fascinating to see people actually come together and people have a lot more in common than they realize. And I think that's really important right now because over the 30 years of the Concord Coalition's existence, if there's one thing that has changed, it is that we are unfortunately more divided and we get our information from different sources. And oftentimes we spend so much time talking that we don't listen and that's what this exercise gives people I think off.
0: the the technology is it drives people apart because it's very easy to get to get a, a flood of information but it's a flood of information sometimes reinforcing what you already want to believe and so when we get people working in these tables one on one it it gets away from that because you you look across the table and you see somebody in your own community uh, who maybe has a different point of view. And it's hard to say, you know, to just dismiss them as some wacko, uh, if just because they have a different point of view, uh, doesn't mean they're not a wacko, but I mean, it's just, (laughs) people (laughs) have different points of view and uh, I think it's a values thing. That's why we call our exercise principles and priorities because, you know, some people have a lot of their, their views about fiscal policy are driven by values. You know, what they think the government should be doing, could be doing, Uh, And, you know, if you get sort of get an exchange of values, people can see where other people are coming from. And then maybe you can reach a compromise about something. The the thing that uh, and I'll just end on this, that that I always look to see when people are coming out of these exercises is, you know, are they smiling? I mean, do they do they seem and the the smile is one of satisfaction of having accomplished something. I, I just find that people. Like going through this exercise of trying to compromise with people who don't necessarily agree with them. And if they're willing to do so, they, they come out of it with a certain camaraderie. Uh, and I, that, that's what always gives me hope and, uh, and, and keeps me going in this work.
1: I agree. And, in, and especially in new England and new Hampshire, obviously this, our podcast goes out worldwide, but in new Hampshire, where we have this radio program, where many of our listeners are uh, there's, there's a long history of town hall meetings, Uh, And across New England. And uh, that's basically what this is. If you think about it, it's a town hall meeting where people come to listen to one another. And we certainly need more of that.
0: Well, that's all the time we have uh, this week. Uh, This is your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. I've been talking with Kitty Kurth, the original field director of the Concord Coalition and Phil Smith, the current field director of the Concord Coalition. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.